Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Date Night, was recorded live at Inside Out Gallery in Traverse City, Michigan in January 2016. In our first story, Ben Whiting keeps going on a series of dates while waiting for the love of his life to make up her mind that she feels the same. At the time, I would not have said that either of us were cheating. (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) Uh, We weren't dating because uh, in order to be dating, both parties uh, need to be available at the onset of said dating. I was available. She was in a multi-year relationship with someone who lived in New York. So, even though she told me that if she looked a few months into the future, she did not see herself with that guy. She saw herself with me. She was still playing that game that I will admit uh, some people have played, uh, where you say to yourself, you know what, I can tell this relationship is not going to work. But instead of ending it, I'm going to do something revolutionary something never thought of before. I am just going to wait. And I know, I hope, I know that if I wait long enough, eventually that magic moment will occur when this person realizes that we are not good together and that we should break up and they will actually at that magic moment in time thank me for waiting so long for that moment to arrive and then break up with them and then they might even give me a letter of recommendation for my next relationship. (laughs) But that doesn't happen. So we wait and wait. And we start to get a little frustrated because the waiting is not paying off. And then we start resenting this other person for not realizing that we are waiting and not taking our obvious hints like saying I love ya instead of I love you at the end of a phone conversation. (laughs) So obvious. And then we wait some more until this resentment builds up and we start dropping bigger hints which they misinterpret and finally one day we snap and we tell them no the reason we're not going out to dinner or movies is not because I'm saving up for a ring it's because I can't deal with my mommy issues let alone my commitment issues and break up with you like a normal adult human being should do (laughs) not that I would know anything about that so this girl I wasn't dating and I are not dating like you typically do. Everyone's hanging out, having a good time, and when everyone leaves the bar, we stay just for one more extra, you know, single malt scotch and lemongrass martini. I love lemongrass martinis. (laughs) Or, you know, we say, hey, we'll just hang out as friends for an afternoon of guilt in a movie. The, uh, and as it usually does, does, I, I realized that no, even though I wasn't break up waiting, I was still waiting. And so with this kind of insanity building up within inside me, I caught it, and I did what I normally do. I called my dad. Uh, at the age of 22, I thought my dad was the stupidest person on earth. When I, when I turned 28, I was amazed at how much he had learned in six years. <laughs> and my dad just gave me one of those annoyingly great pieces of advice. He said, uh, I'll tell you in a second. (laughs) He said, boy, he's not from around here. (laughs) He said, boy, you know you can take the measure of a man by the number of difficult conversations he's willing to start. And you want to make sure if this is a girl you're interested in, You want to make sure that you are the person that you think she deserves. God, that's annoying, isn't it? So annoying. But with that great advice, incredibly annoying advice, ringing in my ear, I acted on my dad's words, and I called her up. And I said to the girl I wasn't dating, I have to put all my cards out on the table. 
I think you are an amazing human being. I want to be with you in a relationship, but I respect you too much, and I respect myself too much to start that relationship like this. She said she understood, and I hung up the phone. And thus began my newfound realm of self-respect and my newfound insanity. Because now I was waiting again. I had chosen to wait, but not only, but I, wasn't, I couldn't be resentful because she knew I was waiting. And I realized that every second on the clock that ticked by, she could be deciding, yeah, I like those cards that he put on the table. Or that's a pretty crummy hand. Or you know what? I don't like this game. I'd rather play Euchre, which is a game I am still skeptical of to this day. And with this newfound insanity, I started calling my friends and my family. And I should just point out right now, as a side note, I have an amazing network of friends and an amazing family. Because I berated them with these god-awful metaphors. And they kept giving me the great same wonderful advice. They said, Ben, I know you're head over heels for this girl you're not dating, but get back in the field. Play, date, have some fun, and get your mind off of it. So I decided to do that. I started going with my friends back out to bars. But something funny happens when you meet that person in your life that makes you want to resolve your commitment issues. And after you meet that person and you go back to the bar scene, when you buy someone a drink, the subtext there is no longer, hey, do you think you might want to have sex with me at some point down the road in the dark, possibly? <laughs> that subtext is gone. Because once you meet that person that makes you want to resolve your commitment issues, now when you buy someone a drink at the bar, the subtext is, do you think you could ever love me? <laughs> so I made a Match.com match profile. I got out of the bars, and I even spent, I think I forget how much it was. It was right around <coughs> dollars for an online consultant to, like, rate my profile. Yes, yeah, like, so I have the online Will Smith looking at my profile after giving him <coughs> dollars, and yes, and wouldn't you know it, I took this sage advice, and having the self-respect to do that, having the self-respect to try dating even if I didn't really feel like, wouldn't you know, the first date I went on was all right. I was all right. And at the end of that first date at Panera, <laughs> early 20s, no, mid 20s, late 20s, I don't know. It's another, it's another, another storytelling event. At the end of that first date at Panera, this new girl who was, whose name was Jill uh, bought me a chocolate chip cookie. And in the napkin, or on the napkin that the cookie was in, had written her phone number. So, I get home, and I talk to my roommate at the time, who, again, is one of those just amazing people, and I tell him about this first date. And even though my roommate, my best friend, is the fiancé of the girl I'm not dating's yeah, it's her best friend's fiancé that is my roommate. Everyone following that web? Okay, good. He was like, Ben, you got to get back out in the field. Give her a call. So the next day, I gave her a call and scheduled a date for later in the week. Um, and I was thinking, all right, so first date was lunch. Second date, maybe dinner somewhere, maybe go dancing or something. But she, she throws me off guard a little bit because she says, I want you to come over to my place. And I'm going to cook my world-famous spaghetti for you. Not a euphemism. Spaghetti. 
And then, but, but, then I want to go dancing. So you see the problem here, yes? The hyper-casual meets the hyper-get-dressy-go-out-have-fun. So what do you wear to this? So I consulted my roommate, and what we decided, and I'm still pretty proud of, was boots that slide on and off, so you can kick them off for as soon as you get in. The most expensive pair of jeans I had, but being mindful to put a napkin on my lap when I ate the spaghetti so the sauce would not get on them, a solid color t-shirt and a button-up dress shirt that I would leave unbuttoned to portray casual, but I could button it up immediately right before we go dancing and then put on a sports coat in the pocket of which I had a small sample of curved cologne so I could not only look, but I could smell like a game. So I had a plan and I was excited about it. So I go over to her place. She opens the door, and I am a little surprised. She is wearing no shoes or socks. She's wearing torn-up jeans, a flannel shirt that's, well, it's, it's not like gaping open, but it's definitely not buttoned all the way to the top, somewhere in that realm, and no makeup. But I'll be honest, she didn't need that much makeup. So we proceed with the date. And it was a, it was a good second date. Her spaghetti sauce I thought was a little subpar, but... But she had those great answers to those second date questions you ask. And then it was time. The meal was done. She had washed the dishes and was like, well, I guess we should get ready to go dancing. And I, very cocky, was like, well, let me just go wash my hands real quick and then we'll do that. But that was not the plan. I go in the bathroom and, man, like a guy, like an NBA player in reverse, I am putting clothes on and buttoning them up and then throwing that jacket on doing the cologne, and man, I'm looking good. And in less than five minutes, I am out the door with my ego, ready for my great comments. What I was not ready for, though, were the gold heels, the wrap dress, this navy blue dress that just wrapped around in like one piece of cloth over one shoulder, the clutch in one hand, the jacket, looking at me through those gorgeous lightly shadowed blue eyes and then said to me with those lipstick lips, what took you so long, good looking? (laughs) Now, I am a magician for a living. That is what I do for a living. I, to this day, do not know how a person could get ready that fast, that well. And the second half of the date was just as good as the first. She's one of those people that could dance. She had no problem doing like the sprinkler or the shopping cart, but she could also do that amazing thing girls do where they just put their arms straight up and do their hips from side to side. Oh, whew, yes. So with that, the date was great. So I get back home and I tell my roommate about this, who keep in mind is girl I'm not dating's best friend's fiance, and he is impressed. And he says, I think we have to schedule another date with Jill. And he also always asks, you know, did anything happen? No, nothing happened up to this point. But then we go out for the third date. And it was better than the first and the second date combined. We went to the Violet Hour in Wicker Park in Chicago, a craft cocktail lounge that is lit entirely by candlelight. We had a conversation that was packed full of laughs, and then we took this long walk to an ice cream shop and had a conversation that was packed full of like vulnerability and just those open and honest questions that that really make you think as a human being about where you're going and what you're deciding to do. And that night, it ended with one single long kiss that she initiated. So now, I am in a predicament. I get home, I tell my roommate about this, and he tells me he is officially, despite being girl I'm not dating's best friend's fiance, he is on Team Jill. (laughs) Not to mention, girl I'm not dating's best friend, is now on Team Jill. And of course, this is the time I got a phone call from the girl I wasn't dating, letting me know that she wanted to date 
exclusively. That she had broken up with her boyfriend and was available. So what do I do? I dropped Jill like fourth period French. It was easy. Easiest decision I ever made in my life. And the girl who I was now dating told me, you know, Ben, I'd never encountered that much self-respect in a decision to date someone. The way I had told her I wasn't going to talk to her until she made up her mind about who she was dating. And she also heard about Jill. That helped a little bit. And then I had another realization. I had one of those pangs of annoyingly good wisdom in the back of my head from a friend in Nashville, Tennessee, who once told me the bottom line about being with someone, does that person make you a better person? Does that person make you want to be a better person? And it was at that moment I realize with my newfound self-respect, my real self-respect, that I immediately had to confess to the girl I was dating that Jill was entirely made up. The first date happened, but I knew that my roommate was her best friend's fiance. I still got ready for all these dates. I asked for his advice. I went off on my own for three to four hours <laughs> with a notebook to write about what in the world would be happening on these dates. And then I came home and told him about it. And then I told her all of that because I knew she was a person that made me want to be a better person, that needed to have genuine self-respect and not just strategy. And I am happy to say that now not only do I have an amazing family, an amazing network of friends, an amazing best friend who was my roommate at the time and still, by the grace of God, calls me a friend, but I also have a wife who continually pushes me to be a better person to this day. Love you, Aaron. In our next story, Daniel Stewart's first real kiss is much different from his first technical kiss. So um, I step off the bus, and I know immediately that I'm in paradise. I mean, it's not the grass and the trees and the red brick, because my little hometown back in Ohio, it has all these things, but it's the way they're put together, because the grass is a quad. And they're shaded by these gorgeous, you know, by these gorgeous oaks. And the red brick are all the buildings around it. This is a college campus and the kind of place I've always dreamed that I would be. Now, this is the summer before my uh, senior year in high school. And this is a small college in Virginia where I've never been before. I don't really know much about it. But I heard about this creative writing program that they were offering, a week intensive. Um, I, there would be classes in the morning and then with assignments that we'd, we would write all afternoon. And then we would rewrite all evening to present in the class the next morning. And I've never done anything remotely like this. And I sign up, pretty much sight unseen, and now I am here. And it is intense, and there are, there are maybe a dozen of us who are participating in this program. So of course, in this empty campus, we spend all of our time together. You know, we spend our meal time, our class time, our social time, we're out on the quad laying underneath the trees as we write and talk and we eat and talk, and we are all among people who are just like us, which is what I came for. And, I also, and what I also noticed, though, is her. She's super smart, she's really funny, 
She's read all these books I've only heard about. In class, she writes better than I do. She, she acts, she sings. She lives outside of New York City, which makes her seem so worldly to me. She seems like the girl of my dreams, and she likes me too. The week is flying by as we're spending all of our time together in this group, and I want to kiss her. I so much want to kiss her, but I have this problem in that I have never actually kissed a girl before. And I mean, I admit I have a vast store of sort of theoretical knowledge on the topic. <laughs> but the problem is that, you know, all these thinking about what it would be like, the real problem is, how do you start it? And now it is the night before the whole program is ending. Tomorrow, there's one more class meeting and then we're all going home. We're all scattering. She's going back to New York, I'm going back to Ohio. And she and I are alone and we're walking across the quad. It's dark. It's a really heavy Virginia night. There's so much moisture in the air that all the street lamps have, that all the lamps around us have this sort of halo. And we're holding hands. And I don't know how to start kissing her. So eventually, I just stop us and I say, I've never kissed a girl before. And she says, well, I was wondering what was taking you so long. <laughs> And so we start. And frankly, I don't know whether it was one really long kiss or whether it was just like a lot of kisses back to back that sort of didn't have any space in between them. And maybe it's because my higher brain functions are pretty much shutting down <laughs> because I am oh so aware that there is maybe like two layers of thin cotton between me and a totally naked girl. <laughs> Um, but still, in the back of my mind, there is this clock running. Because, you know, I've spent these years wanting time always to go faster. You know, I'm always trying to get to the next thing. I'm always trying to grow up, and I want to get there so fast. And I always want it to be the next month, and I always want it to be the next year. But right now, what I want is time just to stop. I want to have this one evening just last forever. But, I mean, to wish that, what does time do? Time hits the accelerator. And before I know it, it's the next day, and there's these impossible goodbyes, and then I'm back on the bus for the rest of the trip, to, for the trip back to Ohio, where presumably I went over mountains and things because I was in the bus all day, but I didn't remember a thing about it. When I got back, I knew that I was in love and that I was a different person. Now, this was back in the 80s, so we didn't have email, we didn't have texting. Um, long distance was way too expensive for us to talk but more than a few minutes a week. So we've just come to it from a creative writing class. So what do we do? We begin writing letters. I have this pad, this writing tablet, you know, just all these sort of smallish white sheets unlined. And I begin filling them with my letters to her. And then when I fold them up and put them in the envelope, I seal the envelope. The mailbox is right on the corner, just one house away. Um, the mailman comes and picks it up a little before noon. I put the stamp on. And then because I can't stand the thought that she'll like have to wait to open the envelope before I can actually start talking to her, I begin writing on the outside of the envelope too. And, and I write to her every single day because she's the girl of my dreams and also because I really like having somebody to talk to because frankly this is a really this is turning out to be a really bad summer for me because I've gone to this creative writing program for the first time and what else I'm doing for the first time is I am not playing football Ever since I was in elementary school, I've played all of these sports. You know, I've played baseball and basketball, a little bit of track and football, because my big brother did, and because it made my parents happy. The thing is, 
I've never liked any of it. And in fact, I sort of hate it. And I just don't want to do it. I hate football, therefore I don't want to play football. And this makes my parents incredibly angry. You see, every day, my father gets up and he puts on a black uniform and he goes off to his job as a cop. Every day my mother gets up and she puts on a white uniform and she goes off to her job in the food service in the local school district, my, my school district. She's a, she's a lunch lady. And what they want me to understand is that for people like us, what you want in life and what you do in life have no relationship to each other. You need to understand, life is not here to give you things. Life is here to take everything from you. My brother, he was a smart guy, but he was never one for the books. He went to college. I mean, he's gone to college because he's a good football player. He is at West Point because it turns out that he is perfectly sized to be the fullback in the wishbone offense. So now he comes home, and he is a cadet, and he tells us stories about hitting a Notre Dame linebacker so hard that he doesn't even remember the hit, just waking up on the turf afterwards. I need to understand what kind of options are available to people like us. If I want to see what the lives turn out of people who are your quitters and your dreamers, a good place to start might be the bar, the bar that's across the street from Johnny's Toys. It's called Never on Sundays. Go there any day of the week, and you'll find your quitters and your dreamers and your other losers. And I think, well, you can even find them on Sundays, which is sort of ironic, given the name of the place. Never on Sundays. I try to find a little bit of humor in this, but I'm filling these letters with, with all of the dreams of somebody who feels like I have found somebody who understands me. And, you know, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me too much that she doesn't write back as much as she used to. After all, school has started again. She's really busy because she's taking this heavy course load to get ready for college. She's also spending her, spending her spare time in a play because that's what she does. And she writes to me about the play. And there's this guy that she was talking to. And he is so funny. And she really thinks that I would like him. And I know that it is done before I will admit it is done. Because when I admit it is done, when I admit that the whole notion of having a girl of my dreams, like the notion of love itself, means a lot more things than I want to admit. And when I finally accept that, I will have to stop writing her. And I do. And I do. And then about three years later, I wrote another letter to her. I knew where she'd gone to college because it was exactly where she'd planned to go to college. Um, I wrote to her from what was actually my third college, which is a, a totally different story. Um, and she wrote back. She was indeed studying creative writing. She was doing pretty well. We began exchanging a few letters. She wrote that, that guy from the play in high school, that didn't last past graduation, which I admit did make me feel sort of good. And all those letters that I wrote to her, yeah, she sort of threw all those away. This was actually pretty much as close as we'd ever been in geography. We were only about three, or two colleges were only about three hours apart. We wrote for a little while, and then we didn't write, because our paths just weren't going to cross. And if there is 
anything from all of this that I wish might have been otherwise? The only thing, I think, is that I wish that those letters still existed. I wouldn't read them. I wouldn't even have to have them myself. I would like to know that they are somewhere out there. If only because then I would have proof about the existence of that boy who wanted so much to start and didn't know how to stop. Thanks very much. Next, Anne Bonnie's urgent need for a bathroom on a first date means she has to take a pit stop in the last place she'd ever want to stop. As I walked into the trendy Astoria bar, I had the usual simultaneous feelings of dread and optimism. Online dating is a way to meet people. Most of the online dates I'd been on so far had been pretty disappointing. Not bad, but not good. And every single first online date is a little bit of Russian roulette, so you're never quite sure what you're going to get. Hence, my dread. But my philosophy was that if I was online, and I'm relatively intelligent, relatively attractive, relatively normal, relatively interesting, there had to be a guy that was similarly endowed with positive characteristics on there looking for me. So I was optimistic. Now, it was a really lonely time in my life, and at 41, I was concerned that it was over and that I was going to have to get a large floral dress and a bunch of cats. <laughs> but... Um, Despite two failed marriages, I still held to that Disney-inspired romantic notion of true love and soulmate and someday my prince will come baloney, so I kept looking. So I go into this bar with, of course, the thought in my mind tonight, I may meet the man that I spend the rest of my life with. So I walk up into the bar, sit down, and uh, start chatting up the waiter who asks, you know, what I'm doing. I said, I'm here on a first date. When he asked if we met online, I said, yeah. He said, I'll buy you a double and good luck and rolled his eyes and walked away. <laughs> like, oh boy, here we go. So in walks Brian and I see him across the bar and instantly recognize him and a little shimmer goes under my skin because he was adorable. And uh, so, you know, and he smiles and walks over. He was tall and manly and he had a smile that looked like he was comfortable in his smile. And that was really nice, so I smiled back. As he got to the table, I stood up and, you know, went to greet him, and he gave me a big hug, a nice warm hug that was really comfortable. You know, sometimes on the first date, you get the handshake, which is just awkward. So he just gave me a nice, it was just a wonderful way to, to kick off the date. So we sat down, conversation started. He was a chef, and he had told me online that his job, his business, was cooking for TV and movie sets. So of course I was fascinated. He had a ton of great stories, including a lot of stories about big names that he had cooked for. Um, he had cooked for Christopher Walken, and he actually did a really good Christopher Walken impression about or him ordering eggs every single day the same way for two months. So that was pretty funny. And apparently Beyonce said he was cute one time. Suspect. Um, and I can't repeat the stories about Alec Baldwin, so we'll just leave that one alone. Um, but generally, you know, it was, it was interesting and I was fascinated. I had tons of questions. And uh, of course, who doesn't want to date a guy who can cook, right? Um, so then he turned the attention on me, asked for a few of the details that I had on my profile. And we got into the comfort and the conversation was flowing and it was intelligent and it was wonderfully two-sided and it was just going really well. Um, it was, we talked about his divorce and my divorce and his kids and how we were rebuilding our lives. And it was comfortable and honest and genuine. It was a little heavy, but not in an uncomfortable way. It was just easy. And it was genuine and open and nice. It was just really nice. So as the waiter came over to bring our third cocktail, he commented that he, he couldn't believe that we were on a first date because it just seemed like we had known each other for a long time. And it really did, did seem that way. It was, it was wonderful. So eventually the bar closed and we had to leave and uh, I, neither of us wanted the night to end. So I said, hey, I know this great lounge in my neighborhood. Let's go there. It's open till 5 a.m. And now please note, this is New York City. There 
are probably 20 bars within a two mile or a two block radius of where we were that were open all night, right? But of course, my intoxicated take charge kind of way, I say, hey, let's jump on the subway for 45 minutes and go to my neighborhood. So we did. He was up for the challenge, which of course, I'm all about that. Any guy who's willing to Get on, go on an adventure on Tuesday night at midnight is, is my kind of guy. So we bundle up. It was about this time of year, and we head out in Astoria. The subway platform is outside, and it's it's a raised platform. So we're standing there in the cold wind, shaking and waiting and laughing and talking. And finally, I'm like, come on, train. I'm freezing. And so he grabs my arms and pulls me over to him and wraps his jacket around me and snuggles me all up in there. And he's quite a bit taller than me, and um, I was all sheltered from the cold and it was nice and warm and it was just a nice comfortable feeling and I looked up at him and he gently kissed me and we had that moment where you stop about an inch away from each other after a wonderful kiss and you have that breathless moment that you're just totally in that instant and you hope it's never going to end but you're wishing for another kiss and I did get that kiss, just, of course, as the train comes rushing into the station. So we hop on the train, and we're that annoying couple. Okay, we're laughing and kissing, and we're all together and adorable. And I'm all giddy, because I'm always jealous of that couple. And I'm always like, you know, I want to be them. And all of a sudden, that's me, and I'm kissing a boy, and it's so much fun, and everything's going great, and it's comfortable. And then all of a sudden, everything changed. I looked at him. I said, Brian, I got to pee. I gotta pee bad. <laughs> Aside from the three cocktails that we'd had, I probably had four big glasses of water, and I thought of going to the bathroom before I left the bar, and I just, I don't know why, but I didn't. We were 25 minutes from where we were going, and you know, I just was a problem. <laughs> I wasn't gonna make it 20 minutes, 25 minutes. It's not like there's a bathroom on the train or in the station. I, uh, I gotta go. Finally, Brian says, I know. And he explains that the next stop on the subway is the Port Authority bus terminal. And he knows where the bathroom is. And then he pauses cautiously and said, is that okay? Now, all I heard was, there's a bathroom there. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, that's just fine. In fact, it's not going to be okay any other way. I cross my legs, and I wait for the next stop. As soon as the doors open, we shoot out of the train. We run through the station, bang through the turnstiles, zoom down the foyer. We're passing people. Some are sitting down. Some are standing up. Some guys dancing. But I was on a mission there was only one thing that mattered. Every step was painful, but I was running was really the only option because the clock was ticking on my bladder's ability to hold on. So we were running, and all of a sudden Brian goes, "There it is!" And he points past the foy or past the food court, past the guy that's mopping, and the other guy kind of kind of leaning. And all I saw was a light from heaven shining down on the most beautiful bathroom I'd ever seen. Be right back. And I go zooming off to the bathroom. I'm fumbling with my pants before I'm even in the door. The female custodian is dying laughing at me. And I'm like fumbling to get in. I fumble with the door and the lock is broken. I don't care. <sighs> I made it. And I close my eyes. And a, just a rush of relief floods my whole body. I take a deep breath. And as I open my eyes, it occurs to me where we are. The Port Authority bus terminal is the gateway of New to New York City for anybody who can't afford a car or a subway or the Amtrak train or a cab. It's also a great place to spend the night if you can't afford a hotel or a cardboard box, or if you're not sure where you are, or if you're not sure who you are. So needless to say, it ain't the Ritz, and I'm sitting on the seat reading about who to call for a good time, complete with a drawing, and, uh, and the... Potentially, the man of my dreams is standing outside waiting for me as I'm contracting an incurable skin disease by sitting on the seat. Okay, so I finish up and I try to get out of the stall without touching anything. I contemplate rinsing off my butt cheeks in the sink, but <laughs> the thought that somebody probably does that on a regular basis kind of... I was like, okay, no big deal. I can get it. I'll leave the bathroom without touching anything. And walk out into the food court, and there's Brian, and all the crisis and the parasites just fall away. And I dramatically breathed a sigh of relief, and he smiled that smile, and I went running up to him and gave him a big kiss, which turned into a bigger kiss. And I'm not sure when my feet hit the ground, but it was after a little bit of spinning, both literally and in my head. And he sets me down, and puts his arm around me and says, let's go. 
And we walked out of the bus terminal, got back on the subway, down to my neighborhood, to the lounge that was open all night for one last drink. Now, I'd love to tell you that he was the man of my dreams and that we're having our happily ever after right now. Unfortunately, that's not the case. We did spend a few wonderful nights together, and um, we had a great time. just didn't work out. Nothing dramatic. He didn't have a wife or bodies in his basement or anything. It was just not our time. But that 55 minutes on the subway and running through the bus terminal was some of the most romantic. It was the most romantic time I ever spent during my time in New York City. It wasn't, you could say that perhaps I need to raise my standards <laughs> when a painful jaunt through the most disgusting public space in the city is my most romantic time. But in the end of the day, we were together. We were just connected and together and in the moment. And when I needed him to be, he was selflessly committed to getting me what I needed at that exact moment. The location didn't matter and the activity didn't matter. It was two people who were connected and together at a time when those two people really needed that. And it was beautiful. And while I'll probably never see Brian again, those 55 minutes are about the most, one of the most romantic times of my whole life. Thank you. In the next story, Jen Loop and an online date move through the entire course of a relationship all within one week. So I didn't date much in high school, maybe a few relationships that lasted a month or two. Um, but I was pretty secure and happy with my friends. I had a really good time. I felt supported. Um, I felt like my needs were being met. Um, and, you know, guys were interesting, but at that point in time, it was nothing that was not a driving force in my life. So... Um, when I went to college, I started having a, a harder emotional time. That was a big break for me. I felt like everyone who had always been there and understood me was suddenly gone. And there was this guy who I had known since seventh grade who had the same reaction. So I remember right before we ended up going to college, like sitting on my porch, and I was, I was physically ill. I was so upset about this change that I... Um, I almost threw up, and he had the same thing. So we connected over this, and we started dating my first, um, my first, my freshman year of college. And he was my first kiss. He was my first everything after that. And we were very compatible. Um, absolutely great relationship. There was nothing wrong with it. Uh, things that probably weren't exactly right or exactly challenging, it took me 12 years to figure out. So we started dating. Yeah, most people get that a little sooner. Um, so we started dating when I was 18, and we broke up when I was 30. Basically, I had the emotional like, capabilities of an 18-year-old at this point. I am a 30-year-old here in Traverse City, single for the first time and actually caring about dating for the first time. And coping skills, me, you know, they were marginal at best. Um, and also knowing myself outside of that relationship. I had no concept of really who I was. We were, we operated well together and I had an independent life and, and he did also, but we had all the same friends. So as soon as that was over, um, I had to recreate my life. And I immediately fell into a very heartbreaking situation with um, someone who was unavailable and like, that was the first time I ever felt this immediate connection to someone and had that experience. Well, this was not going to work out, so what I decide to do, and this is at 31, is online date because I'm the person you really want to meet at that point. Uh, <laughs> no, no, this is where all the bad stories come from. Uh, <laughs> So I was, I was going to attempt this, because this is what you do when you're really sad and heartbroken and you don't know how to live without that one person who always cared about your life, and you, you look for distractions, right? So um, I tried OkCupid, and the way I knew how to operate in relationships was this level of intimacy with someone you've known, with, been dating for 12 years, but also have known since seventh grade. And I'm still like this with people. I very much want to get to the heart of someone because that's where I relate best. And I don't really understand like kind of just casual acquaintances. I'm starting to get it, but you know, it's taken a few years. Um, so I joined the online dating scene and I met a few people and I was very, I'm very like text oriented. So I'm chatting a lot and 
one of the first people I met, you know, we're talking nonstop over the period of like one or two days, and we're already getting into all this family stuff. Um, he had a pretty serious life, and he had ended up in a body cast, and he had been shot a few times, and like these are things we're talking about right away, because why not? And, um, you know, that first day, it was, so what do you do? And he's like, well, you know, women, women often are scared away, uh, scared away by the answer to this question. I'm like, okay, well, give me a try. I'm not judgmental, you know. Um, and he's like, well, I deal in illegal substances. And I was like, right, okay, you know, that's cool. That's, that's a nice way to make a living. Um, and he had a, you know, a side job too, and that's also fine. Um, and he seemed like a really nice guy <laughs> and we got along with, with certain things like dogs and, and all of this. And, um, <laughs> and this is what happens, 12 year relationship. And, and so like by day three, we were already doing like intimate phone conversations that are usually like, you know, four months down the line? I don't even know. I have no time for the frame for these things. So by day four, you know, maybe we should meet. And so we arranged this date where I'm going to go to his house. Now, Traverse is small enough where, and this happened around here, I, I know enough people here so I could ask about him. I'm not completely irrational at this point. Uh, and so I knew I, I was able to check up and like, he's like a weird guy, but like not someone who's going to kill me. And so at this point, okay. <laughs> but I, okay, so we're going to talk about the bar. I don't even know if I had a bar. Like it just, it was there somewhere. Um, I just couldn't see it. Uh, so... I drive out to his house, like 25 minutes away, because that's reasonable, and I pull up to the six-foot chain-link fence that has barbed wire outside of it, and like wait for him to unlock the door and roll back the gate. Uh, and none of this seems, you know, I, again, I, I enjoyed talking to him enough and thought he seemed like a nice guy, so why not? Um, so, so I end up, you know, going in with, like, you know, these ideas. I told my sister where I was going. I'm not, I'm not completely crazy. Uh, and so I went, to, I went to his house, and I picked him up, and he showed me his warehouses and all this stuff and, like, what he does. And we drive back into town, and we go to Modes because Modes bum steer. You know, that's a nice place with a lot of ambiance and, you know, some steaks. I, I have no idea. Uh, what was starting to happen, though, and he, he is a very nice guy, um, but, you know, those kind of personality differences that maybe you figure out before you meet someone or before you're in intimately involved by four days, uh, he was a very intense person. And that's not a problem. It's just the kind of loud where I get uncomfortable. It's that person who's like, might not quite know that when you yell stuff in a restaurant, like other people aren't really happy to hear it. And so, I, and, and nothing offensive. Again, he was not, he was not, um, he was not rude in a, you know, like in a way that got into other people's space, but yet he seemed to have no idea of where his space was. And so, you know, I'm starting to feel like, eh, well, you know, might not be a match. But of course I make out with him in the parking lot anyway. Uh, so, so, you know, we're doing this, let me go to the and then of course I have to get him back home. Um, this was all very well planned. And so we drive back up to the compound and he like lets me in and I, there was a moment of decision, but it was probably I was far enough along down this path where I was like, okay, I'm going inside. And like, he was very respectful. There was nothing bad that happened that night, but this definitely was my first and only one night stand. And that happened the next morning. And as I was looking around his house that had unfinished walls and he had only recently put the plumbing in, he told me later that in order to go on our date, he took a shower out of like a bucket with cold water from somewhere else. And like he was in an emotional, you know, strange spot too. And clearly we matched on that. Uh, so I, as I was looking around his house that next morning, um, I wasn't, I wasn't hating myself for it. I wasn't regretting it. Like we, we did come together on something, but I, as I, you know, was looking around and, and then you know, sort of took myself away and drove out. Um, I was like, you know, maybe, maybe that was like a one-off. I don't really need to see him again. I'm getting so smart by, by day four. Um, so by day seven, he kept talking to me and like, we ended up having this, like this relationship, like 
like blowout. It was like he was upset about something and I wasn't meeting his emotional needs or couldn't go pick him up or something and like we, j we broke up. Um, and so, <laughs> as I look back on this, and it's really not, it's not his fault. Um, I don't blame myself too much except for not being self-aware. And now as I get into dating and I'm much more emotionally secure, I'm getting over the, like, the heartbreak and also this idea of not having that person around that knows everything about you. Um, I'm getting to this this thought where if my basic needs are met and I feel secure, at least, at least I can get out of the selfishness that comes with dating, this idea of what can you do for me, or even not consciously, you know, being aware of I have everything okay, and what is the other person getting out of this date? <laughs> In the final story of this show, Elon Cameron is having a tough time discerning if she and the woman she's met are best friends or dating. Jen and I met for the first time twice. The first, first time I have no recollection of. It was like in one of those movies where time travel is possible, but if you see someone who's relevant to your future or past life, they just don't have a face, or they're just generally human-shaped with no detail. The first time I met Jen, I was in the deep haze of breakup land. Not just any breakup land, but the kind of breakup land that happens over and over again and traumatizes you to the point that you're crazy and sad and you feel like you're going to be alone forever and you just scrape your way to the surface of that experience and the person that you gave your whole heart to who laid your world entirely empty is just standing there at the edge of the murky waters you're barely emerging from. So I was in that place. I wasn't looking people in the eye anymore. I wrote whole journals of self-deprecating, fearful, angry proclamations. I didn't meet Jen that day. She may have met some facet of me, but I wasn't really there. Something like a year later, I'd sorted myself out a bit, got a supremely kick-ass therapist, put a firm stop to non-committal uh, certain kinds of dysfunctional relationships, and wrote a seven-page list of what I wanted in a mate. The second we met, second time we met, it was one of those events that even describing it now, almost 14 years later, kind of makes me cringe. It was kind of a disaster setting. Uh, my very square, androgynous, upwardly mobile lesbian housemates, very square, androgynous, upwardly mobile lesbian girlfriend had the amazing idea that throwing a surprise party would get her out of the doghouse for under-planning an important birthday. So, important birthday is in such heavy quotes here because this is a couple who celebrated their monthly anniversary. They went on like ridiculous lesbian cruises and vacations like every two months. <laughs> and inevitably broke up despite their frequent and rather disturbingly loud sex. <laughs> The girlfriend decided to throw the roommate a surprise party on the same day as her beloved uncle's funeral. Yeah, such a great idea. Um, so we were to meet at the bar, assemble, and surprise her. <laughs> I lived at the time on Winona Avenue in uptown Chicago, and my dear friend Ben, from Traverse City, lived next door. And he and I would often talk on the phone, both single, relatively lovelorn, and somewhat antisocial. Our relationship was really close, and it worked for us. So I called him as soon as I heard about the party from the roommate's girlfriend. Look, I know it sounds like a bad idea, but it's the roommate's birthday, and so what if she's coming from a funeral? You have to come with me. I don't know. That sounds pretty uncomfortable. Okay, I'll buy you one of those weird Zima drinks. <laughs> They're called Mike's Hard Lemonade. Whatever. Make fun of my drink, and I'm not coming. Fine, Ben. You drink an awesome drink for a man. 
in his teens. Dude, I'm like 30. I know, I made like eight pounds of guacamole for your birthday. Yes, you did. And that is why you're coming to this weird lesbian surprise party with me. Okay, sounds fair. We agreed to meet on my stoop, the closer of the two, which is near Big Chicks at the end of our block. <laughs> I ordered Ben's Mike's Hard Lemonade and a beer. I had to learn to drink beer because I was queer and a woman, and then I really learned how to drink beer, and now I can't tolerate gluten because I drank all that beer. So, <laughs> anywho. We stood there for a while, just watching the daytime Sunday bar crowd. There were young men nursing hangovers and their budding egos. There were old men drinking to pass the time and watching the young men. There were no women in the bar. And then, one walked in. She had a fun time smile and a swagger like she belonged there. It was something to behold. A shaggy short haircut, a jean jacket, and a t-shirt that read, gas, grass, or ass, no free rides. interrupted my reverie. Holy shit, I've never seen you check someone out before. Shut up, Ben. No, seriously, that was so weird. You were totally looking at that girl. Shut up, Ben. Do you think she's here for the party? Oh, I wish. That was so weird. After passing us, she walked a lap around the back area and returned, and then she was back and caught my attention. She kind of leaned in as if she was hanging out the window of a pickup truck. Y'all here for the party? Ben looked at me and hum giggled. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about the birthday girl and how we hoped we could make up for the day she'd had. We were just people sitting in a bar, though. So then three tall, long, dark-haired Chicago lesbians walked into Big Chicks. The five or six of us gathered and yelled, surprise! <laughs> and the birthday girl said, you know I just came from a funeral, right? Clearly thinking that this was my idea and that I was being completely insane and misguided to try to have this like friendship with the woman that I lived with. And I was like, it was your girlfriend who thought this was a good idea. And she's like, oh, sweetie, thank you so much. You're <sighs> we had a drink, ate some cake, and then it was announced we were going to Madrigal's, a gay strip club. I was a little confused, so I asked for some intel. The lesbian front assured me that it was super fun and totally laid back. Ben would be safe and we would be ignored. Upon walking in, a very tall, muscular man in a banana hammock was shaking his floppy underthings on a bald man's forehead. <laughs> Visions of Elaine from The Graduate flashed in my mind. I really didn't want to cry right now. I wanted to go get Vietnamese food or falafel, but this visage might put me off food forever. We tried to be cool, but after a guy asked if he could touch my boobs, it's totally cool, I'm gay. <laughs> and tried to get into Ben's toolbox, we decided to go to Argyle. Our favorite spot, Na Trang, cheap, delicious, delicious Vietnamese food, all prepared by the sweet older couple who ran the place, and probably still does. We met up with some other friends who regulared. I was giving Ben a hard time. Dude, if you don't want to be hit on at a gay bar, maybe you shouldn't order the fruity drinks, huh? Think of that? Maybe a bit mean, but we've been friends since 11th grade, so we get to talk to each other this way. At that moment, I'd had two relationships in two years, both of which had ended horrifically by someone saying the following words. You are just too much. I was not interested in dating. 
Unless they came with some sort of ironclad mental health history and passed my sentinel group of friends panel judgment, I was in this weird gray area suddenly. When a woman and a man go out for drinks and then go to a little Vietnamese restaurant and then go to a strip club and one invites the other one up to their place, I don't think there's much conjecture about what's going on. But because I was so woefully under-equipped, I filled in no blanks, I assumed absolutely nothing, and I refused staunchly to make the first move. At the end of the roommate's birthday party night, Jen wrote her phone number on the corner of the reader, Chicago's weekly free paper. She was so metropolitan and so futuristic, she had no landline, which I thought was completely shady and totally suspect. (laughs) A couple of days later, she called me, invited me to her Cinco de Mayo barbecue at her new apartment. I started asking around about her. Who knew what? Who had she dated? All I knew is her ex was some sexy redhead from improv at Second City. What did I care? God damn it, I'm just going to her fucking barbecue. I went, and I knew some folks there, which was really lucky because she completely ignored me the entire time. I would ask her a question, kind of trying to engage, and she'd answer incredibly quickly and completely disappear. Okay, case solved. We are not dating. She called the next day to invite me over. Hmm, maybe we're dating. And then she said, it's just to help me eat all these leftovers before I leave town. I just hate for anything to go to waste. Cool, not dating. When I got there, she was wearing a skirt. Okay, super duper not dating. And one of those South American pullover hoodies that are kind of coming back into style now, but absolutely were not, at the time, not dating. (laughs) And then she pulled the most beautiful slab of beef off the grill that she'd obviously marinated and prepared impeccably. She let it rest and then sliced it against the grain, as you should. Damn it. We talked long about books and music and travel. I stayed until after 1 a.m., even though I had to be up at 7. Something was happening. She explained that she had to go to Texas for her brother's college graduation party. She explained that her family expects certain things of her, and she asked me if I might loan her a modest dress. Not dating. This went on for weeks. I won't bore you with each and every back and forth. She loves Neil Young. It's on. She likes Dave Matthews. Off. <laughs> she likes being in the great outdoors. On. She only has five, has five pairs. Or, no, sorry. She only owns five socks, none of which match each other. <laughs> Off. She and I had exchanged so many snarky emails and flirtatious comments that it is somewhat baffling to me that neither of us could crack the code. Uh, One night, observing my collection of magic eight balls by the front door of my apartment, one of which was pink and sparkly and called the date ball, she mumbled something, so was this an eight ball or a date ball? I'm sorry, what? She disappeared down three flights of stairs in record time. I heard the front door of my apartment building slam before I could even gather myself to say, what did you just say? Is this an eight ball or a date ball? Friends were starting to make comments. You two sure are seeing a lot of one another. I'd always just redirect the conversation and joke that my relationship curse made me existentially undateable. One night, someone I still don't know, except that her first name is Tina, pulled me aside and literally said, I think you should go for it. And I said, maybe you should tell her that. I still think that's funny. (laughs) Our first kiss was on a 35-degree spring night in 2002. I still have no idea how dating works. It seems that there's an important bit about knowing what you want, about being around people who make you light up, and being open to what exists and what could exist 
and what really shows up for the job. Jen is completely mortified, and that's why she was flipping me off, that I tell people that she ever wore a skirt or asked to borrow a dress or the Dave Matthews part or the mumbly bit. I'm only bothered slightly by her sometimes spotty musical taste. (laughs) But our story is our shared story. As for date night, after 14 years, we kind of forget to do that. A commonality among long-term relationship folks, I guess. But something I'm totally open to improving. A date. A special event for two. Maybe I still haven't cracked the code. Maybe we're always learning and evolving, and maybe it's just like that. And maybe, just maybe, if you find the right person who cherishes your quirkiness and names your awkwardness grace, someone who holds your hand when you need them to and shows up for the job day after day, maybe that's date enough. Thanks. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to Mike Kurtz and Inside Out Gallery. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Thanks for listening. Thank you.